Hi, Steve here. Are you sick and tired of this chaos in the world? The uncertainty? It seems like the world has been turned upside down. But what if I told you that this so-called new normal is not about our safety, but about something much more sinister? Let me unveil the true purpose of the new normal, if you don't already know. The new normal is really about destroying everything we once knew. The bustling city streets, the vibrant economy, and our way of life are all being dismantled. But why? To make way for the agenda of the elite. They want a world with fewer people, where power is concentrated in their hands. One way they're achieving this is through the mass vaccination campaign. While they claim it's for our safety, there's a hidden agenda. These vaccines aren't about health. They're about control. They contain hidden ingredients designed to weaken our immune systems and manipulate our minds. Once their plan is complete, cities will be ghost towns, small businesses will be decimated, and the middle class will cease to exist. They want a world filled with obedient workers who are easily controlled. This destruction is the first step towards their ultimate goal of global domination. But we can't let them succeed. We have to resist and expose their true intentions. It's time to unite to stand up for our rights and freedoms. Together we can create a new normal that isn't about destruction and control, but about empowerment and individual sovereignty. We need to rebuild our communities, support local businesses, and educate ourselves about the real agenda behind the new normal. Together, we can reclaim our future and ensure that it's built upon principles of freedom, transparency, and justice. Digital IDs linked to a social credit score, a massive database, and a programmable centralized digital currency could be a reality by 2030. According to the UN's Agenda 2030, providing a legal identity for all and a digital public infrastructure is essential to achieve peace, inclusivity, and justice. And to that end, the United Nations, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and partners of the Rockefeller Foundation have recently launched their 50 in 5 campaign to accelerate digital public infrastructure. The aim is to facilitate digital ID, digital payments like central bank digital currencies, and data sharing rollouts in 50 countries in five years' time, or by 2028. Now, the Digital Public Infrastructure, or DPI, is an all-inclusive phrase for a technocratic governance system powered by three main components, digital ID, digital payments, and massive data sharing. Now, DPI is being pitched as a mechanism for financial inclusion, convenience, improved healthcare, safety and security, and to progress an environmentally green agenda. But my next guest says it's all part of an Orwellian plan to exercise control and shape a dystopian future by what he calls the controlling ox. Seamus Bruner details all of this in his latest book, Controlling Ox, Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals, and the Globalist Plot to Dominate Your Life. Seamus, good to have you with us. Welcome to Kitco. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's good to be with you. All right. Well, I read the book cover to cover, and there is a lot of ground in there, a lot of insight and tremendous background on everything from the Rockefellers to Klaus Schwab to BlackRock to Jeff Bezos, George Soros, Mark Zuckerberg, and to Bill Gates. And there's a lot of focus on Bill Gates specifically 
in the book and how digital IDs linked to a social credit score and a programmable digital currency, along with fake meat and a gradual takeover of America's farmland, are next on that particular Controligarch's agenda. And we want to focus on that and dive deep into that, particularly the digital ID angle here. But before we do, Seamus, give us the overview. Who and what are the Controligarchs? Sure. So the Controligarchs are very simply the oligarchs who want to control your life. It's not every billionaire. We don't have a problem with capitalism or making money. We applaud making money in uh, you know legal and fair ways. But these men have use the powers of government in their relationship with government, much like the oligarchs in other countries around the world, to seize control over key industries, whether it's food, finance, healthcare, energy, critically energy, and and critically information. The information industry, I mean, a lot of people think of like censorship and, uh, you know, they've been shadow banned or deplatformed and obviously that's not good. But the direction that uh, information and with the digitalization of everything, Klaus Schwab calls it the digitalization of everything. Um, That was one of the pillars of his great reset. Uh, We're we're headed for some pretty scary territories and we're already there in a lot of ways. Right. And you mentioned Klaus Schwab and he's a big part of the book. It discusses the great reset, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. and, And much of this vision seems to be coming from him. And his you will owe nothing and be happy philosophy. So why don't we start off with giving us a little bit of background on Klaus Schwab. Who is he and what does he want, Seamus? Sure. So Klaus Schwab, he's this uh, academic type, sort of a, a nerdy guy who's an engineer. Um, he studied uh, in, in Switzerland and then he came over to the United States. He went to Harvard um, and studied under his mentor, Henry Kissinger, who is most people have heard of Henry Kissinger, is like the globalist's godfather. And so once he learns from Henry Kissinger, he goes back across the pond and uh, sets up this World Economic Forum in Davos. It was previously called the European Management Symposium, which is a little uh, nerdier than the World Economic Forum. Um, But the World Economic Forum, it started with just $6,000 in seed money and it has ballooned into this $300 million plus per year cash generator for Klaus Schwab and his cronies. Now, the collective uh, market cap of just the top 25 members of the World Economic Forum is well over $10 trillion. I mean, it's an unfathomable sum. Uh, BlackRock is a key financial institution backing the World Economic Forum. That would add another $10 trillion in BlackRock's assets under management with Vanguard and State Street, two of the second and third largest asset managers, you're up over $25 trillion in terms of the financial might of the World Economic Forum. That's higher than the GDP of the United States and and also China and, of course, every other country in the world. So these are very, very powerful entities. And so what happens in Davos, I mean, these are kind of like the the self-appointed hall monitors of the globe. They're the ones who put out a report saying that uh, cows are bad for the environment. And then next thing you know, uh, countries around the world are trying to ban cattle. And they say that uh, cars are bad for the environment. And here in the United States, Governor Newsom in California has announced that gas-powered vehicles will be banned soon. And so out of the World Economic Forum, it kind of is this petri dish of 
tyrannical policies. Now they always cloak it in uh, words like sustainable and green and climate friendly. Um, but when the policies are put into place, it leads to less and less control over your own life. And so, yeah, I mean, starting with Klaus Schwab and we can get into him, uh, like in what his role in the pandemic is and, and what the Great Reset was into, but that's kind of the general overview. All right. And we will get into how the pandemic really provided an opportunity to push forward some of these agendas. But before we get into that, give us still a little bit more background on Klaus Schwab. Where did he spring up from? How much power does he really have? How did he accrue this power? Sure. So he's, he's, his power comes from his ability to convene uh, this, this forum. I mean, without the forum, without, you know, he'd really be nobody. Um, he's, we, we've tried to get you know, a, a handle on his net worth. He's located in Switzerland. It's very notoriously secretive over there, but we found his house and it's not really a house as much as it is a giant estate. It uh, is adjacent to the World Economic Forum in Davos, the gigantic palatial estate with 10 foot high walls around it. So we know he's doing quite wealthy. I mean, the news reports that he's, uh, his net worth has been in news articles around a million dollars for the past 25 years. And that's simply not possible. So his power comes from the corporations who fund this World Economic Forum. And so the ideas aren't so much cooked up by Davos, they're cooked up by its members, uh, corporations like BlackRock, let's say, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill Gates is a keynote speaker there. Mark Zuckerberg attends. George Soros delivers keynote lectures. And so I, I trace the Davos white papers and a lot of you know information has been scrubbed from the internet. They really only put out the good PR, not really the stuff that says, and this is how you can control citizens' lives. Um, but going through their white papers, you find that it's actually organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who dream up the policies and then everybody goes to Davos to get on the same page. It's really more of a bringing everybody together, syncing their strategies, um, getting their stra strategies in sync and making sure that they all have the right talking points for how um, digital ID will uh, help people, uh, you know, participate in society better. I mean, the, the things like digital ID or digital currencies. I mean, Larry Fink of BlackRock recently said that we need a central bank digital currency because it will make uh, cross-border payments for migrants who've come to the United States or come to Canada, uh, they'll be able to send that money back home easier. So that's why we need a digital ID. And you're right. kind of thinking, that, well, that doesn't sound so appealing, but... Well, no, there are lots of things about a central bank digital currency that are very unappealing, and we've detailed them extensively here on Kitco News, and we'll get into that. Uh, you did mention something about how the World Economic Forum has scrubbed the internet of its agenda, but it's actually quite interesting to note that they were quite open with what they intend to do. I mean, there have been YouTube videos, videos rather posted on YouTube that were presented at the World Economic Forum where they lay out quite clearly what they're looking at doing and how potential crises from a pandemic to a massive cyber attack could be instrumental in setting forward that agenda and how we need to prepare for these crises. So talk us through a little bit of some of the information that the World Economic Forum has practically put out there for everyone and then subsequently retracted it recently. Yeah, certainly. So, so the, you know, they aren't very private at all about their plans. I mean, they put it out there. They they do a good job of cloaking it in. Uh, this is for diversity, equity, inclusion, or this is to save the planet. Um, 
you know, and all of their ambitious lofty goals. I mean, so yeah, digital ID is a big priority. So when Klaus Schwab announced his great reset, it was in July of 2020, he says uh, the pandemic is, uh, everybody needs to prepare to have an angrier world. Everybody's going to be angry because the economy is going to uh, be, you know, suffer because of the lockdowns that we were advocating. Um, of course, they did very well. I mean, we, I talk about the trillions of dollars that were transferred from the middle and lower classes to uh, men like Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, et cetera. Um, but part of this great, so he said, so I see a need for a great reset. The pandemic has given us this opportunity. His word is opportunity. Uh, and I believe uh, Justin Trudeau has used the same word. It's kind of funny. They all saw this tragic event as an opportunity to seize control of society. And so the four things that Klaus Schwab identifies as what the opportunity the pandemic provided is, uh, number one, it's going to help us build back better in a greener way. And so you're in the middle of the pandemic, you're thinking, what does a virus have to do with the climate? But we're starting to see what it has to do with that. Uh, the other thing is it's going to up upend capitalism. And so Klaus Schwab is not a capitalist. He has this new system that he calls stakeholder capitalism. It, he tries to make it sound like it's a capitalist system, but it's really not. It's much closer to China's model of state-run capitalism, which is this merger of kind of authoritarianism, but some corporations are allowed to get rich. Um, stakeholder notably doesn't include the people. It's the business leaders. It's the uh, political decision makers. It's the NGO leaders. Um, but on Klaus Schwab's list of stakeholders, uh, we're not there. So uh, in that sense, they're unelected leaders. They're unelected and therefore unaccountable. That's a big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, ESG is a, another priority of the Great Reset is uh, probably number three. And uh, the digitalization of everything. Yeah. And so that's kind of where digital ID fits in and central bank digital currencies is. And, and you think to yourself, what the heck does a pandemic have to do with digitalizing everything? And you, when you go through all of the World Economic Forum literature, you realize that all of these plans were well in the works before the pandemic started. And that's why the pandemic became such an opportunity. Climate change just wasn't doing it. It wasn't cutting it. People weren't willing to uh, give up all of their freedoms to save the planet. It sounded far too ambitious. But for the pandemic, while well, locking everyone down, uh, vaccine passports provide a great entryway for a global digital ID regime. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a little bit about more about Cloud Club. Right. And and you do break again all of this down in the book in, uh, in tremendous detail uh, over there. I want to uh, read a quick excerpt from the book. Where you write, COVID presented great opportunities. Schwab identified at least five major opportunities that COVID presented. First, the world could redefine the social contract to be more inclusive. Second, the pandemic could be used to decarbonize the economy. Third, everything that can be digitalized must be digitalized under something that Schwab termed the fourth industrial revolution. And companies could use the pandemic to rethink their profit motive and transition to a new system called the stakeholder capitalism, which we just uh, broke down for us. And of course, the Great Reset also meant more global cooperation or global governance. Uh, one of the things that is key to the implementation of this, uh, as you highlight in the book, is the uh, Young Leaders Forum, the World Economic Young Leaders Forum. And they're amongst the most powerful people in the world 
Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Palantir's Peter Thiel. That was quite surprising to me that Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal, was a young leader. The founder of Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales, the Rockefeller Foundation president, Rajiv Shah, the co-founder of YouTube, Chad Hurley, just to name a few that are part of this World Economic Forum Young Leaders uh, Ensemble. Break that down for us a little bit more, how that helps shape the vision. Certainly. So um, the, the World Economic Forum is a powerful organization. And if they uh, tap you to be a member of their Young Global Leaders Club, the YGL uh, club, uh, you know, a lot of people will take, take, uh, take them up on it. It will advance your career. But it really shows that uh, the alliance to the globalist vision starts at a young age. I mean, these people, you know, some of these people were not very powerful when they were named to a young global leader. And uh, once they become that, they kind of, you know, the, the doors open to them. And from corporations who are members of the World Economic Forum, they'll be more likely to hire a young global leader. Um, they'll be more likely to support a candidate running for office if they've been a young global leader. And so um, prior to maybe the pandemic, this would not have, it's, it's kind of become a toxic brand now in a lot of ways. So if you're running for office and it suddenly comes out that you were a young global leader, people will be immediately suspicious of your uh, allegiance, whether you're allegiance, uh, allied with the country or with your, whether you're allied with Davos. Um, but prior to the pandemic, I mean, the World Economic Forum was not a very well-known organization. And so a lot of people became these young global leaders and now they they can't really shake the brand. Yeah. You know, like Tulsi Gabbard will, for example, in America will have to answer questions or um, there's some senators who were young global leaders who have to answer questions about it. And uh, they probably wish they weren't young global leaders. Yeah, I think uh, Senator Tom Cotton is one of the senators that you mentioned in the book and his general ideology does not seem to be aligned with what you would expect from the World Economic Forum. You know, more on that, you write in the book that the World Economic Forum has declared a bold agenda among its ambitions, the abolition of private property and personal privacy, the elimination of fossil fuels, a global transition away from animal protein to an insect-based food system. You'll owe nothing, the World Economic Forum has famously assured, ominously adding, and you'll be happy. So as we've discussed, it's been very open about what it wants to do. Why are these their agendas? Yeah, it almost sounds like a threat, doesn't it? You will own nothing, but you will be happy. Like you don't really have a choice here. Um, yeah, they they don't believe in private property ownership. Klaus Schwab doesn't. I mean, they they want to bring about a rental renter based economy where you don't own your house, you don't own your car. They think it's a brilliant and lovely idea, but um, most people don't want to be a renter for life, paying someone else's mortgage. Uh, in a you know property owned by BlackRock or Blackstone, um, and effectively what that looks like is it's a paywall around your entire life. I mean, like you, you get to a website or something, and you hit the paywall. Uh, that's not so fun. Um, they want a subscription based lifestyle, and you see it like cor member corporations of the World Economic Forum. They've really adopted this subscription model type uh, business model where. Uh, like Mercedes and BMWs, if you want to access various features on the vehicle you're driving, I mean, you've already paid for the vehicle, but if you want to have the remote start function for the vehicle, you have to pay an extra $10 a month. If you want heated seats, you have to pay another $5 a month. So you can quickly see how it gets out of hand. And, and like, I mean, you won't be able to afford nice things. And they're kind of seemingly on board with that. 
Well, I mean, you know, arguably you can say that that's a revenue model, right? Continued revenue stream once you sell the car to, you know, maintain, as I say, revenue for the company. But in, in terms of what the World Economic Forum says is the overriding premise, I mean, they sort of put this under the umbrella of trying to protect the planet, right? I mean, isn't that sort of the overarching theme that it's all for your own good, it's actually quite benevolent, and we're doing this to preserve and protect the environment and the planet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who could who could be against protecting the planet? I mean, I don't think anybody wants uh, to kill the planet or to uh, hurt the planet in any way. And that's why it's uh, an unassailable mission, um, unless you have the facts. And the facts are that these are not about saving the planet. I mean, whether it's the the electric vehicles or or the lab grown meats. I mean, both electric vehicles and lab grown meats are much more carbon intensive than their natural equivalents. Um, just ask farmers. I mean, nobody knows how to be sustainable better than a farmer. They they've had the farms in their families in some cases for generations. They know about resource exha- exhaustion that would kill their business, so they don't want to exhaust resources. Uh, nobody knows sustainability better than farmers, and yet they want to put the family-owned farms out of business and use the more carbon-intensive type farming practices. So, um, you know, if you just just a little bit of scrutiny, and you can see these guys aren't you know, about saving the planet. It's you know the obvious headline that ha- happens every year around Davos is look at them flying on their private jets. Right. Um, they're you know they they don't have to fly on their private jets. They could use Zoom and Skype like they forced. The rest of us to do or, or fly commercial, heaven forbid, or they could fly yeah. commercial. Totally, exactly right, and they they and they have already you know written in exemptions. Uh, I believe in the UK or in Europe, where private jet travel will be exempt from like net zero and Agenda twenty thirty restrictions. So of course, it's always going to be rules for thee, not for me. When you're talking about people like Klaus Schwab. Right. And again, in your book, you detail the war on farmers, how Bill Gates has been buying up much of America's farmland, the agenda there. So I really encourage our viewers to read the book to get the detail. But I bring it back to digital IDs and the DPI system, because it seems to be such a central key to implementing much of this agenda in terms of the control that you can exercise once you have a digital ID linked to a digital central bank currency. So help us understand what this universal or digital ID entails. What does it look like? What kind of information would be in it? How how would it function within the broader system? Sure. So Bill Gates has been talking about digital ID for over 10 years. I mean, he, you know, when it as cell phones and smartphones were kind of getting launched in the mid and late 2000s, he was saying cell phones are going to be great because you're going to be able to store all of your vaccination records on them. You're going to be able to store your medical records on them. You're going to be able to link all of the information about yourself on one device. So that's kind of when he first starts talking about digital ideas when smartphones were coming on online. Um, and since then, I mean, there's been a huge initiative called the ID2020. It's funded by major corporations, uh, not just Bill Gates, but um, Mark Zuckerberg and Google and uh, all basically all of the big tech companies, BlackRock, George Soros' Open Society Institutes is behind it. Um, the idea behind a digital ID is that essentially it can be a, you know, a, a social credit score. I mean, if you're, there's, if you're too uh, polluting, I mean, there's credit card companies right now that track your carbon uh, purchases. And if you 
have, uh, if you spend too much money on fuel or carbon-based type products, uh, your credit score goes down. That's exactly, I mean, that they, you see that sort of desire amongst these globalist elites where they can monitor your spending, monitor like what you're uh, into. I mean, of course, you see the censorship on big tech platforms. If you're speaking, uh, you know, in opposition to any of this kind of stuff, you'll get mm -hmm. censored and um, shadow banned. So why not do that to your finances and using a digital ID? Um, and so the, the digital ID is one of those things where the pandemic uh, like, actually really did advance the agenda there with the vaccine passports. Of course, you saw that in Canada, but we also saw it in the United States. In cities like New York, you couldn't get into a restaurant if you didn't have the vaccine, the Excelsior pass. Um, Hawaii required a safe travels pass. And then in Europe, they had, you know, the green pass in certain countries. And so that would like really did a, a, a huge step forward on digital ID. But now vaccine passports aren't necessary. You know, we don't have lockdowns. So uh, they're advancing digital ID for a number of other reasons. Um, Sam Altman, the OpenAI ex-CEO, now CEO again of the company behind ChatGPT, he's closely aligned with Microsoft and working on uh, artificial intelligence. What does that have to do with digital ID? Sam Altman will tell you, because artificial intelligence is poised to put a large number of people out of work, he says that uh, you know people losing their jobs and he says, count on it. It's going to happen. It's not like conspiracy theory. Um, it's much different than the computer revolution. It's uh, this fourth industrial revolution that Klaus Schwab talks about. Um, that's going to lead to job losses. And then when you don't have a job, you're going to need a universal basic income. Mm -hmm. And so the UBI, so when you hear people talk about UBI, I mean, there will be growing calls for it as people lose their jobs. You can kind of see videos both in the US and Canada, people uh, they're sitting in their car and kind of like crying. It's tragic um, about how they can't afford rent. They can't afford insurance. Uh, they're working two jobs. Um, universal basic income will be uh, very appealing to a lot of people. It already is. And how are you going to get your UBI? Uh, through your digital ID. So Sam Altman funded this world coin where they scan your iris and they associate it with your digital ID. And that, that's why people, people will probably end up begging for digital ID so that they can get their UBI. Right. And that's a way to, you know, get the public in. You promise them a universal basic income. They have to download the digital ID. They have to receive it through the central bank digital currency. And then they become super dependent on the system. And, you know, cat is out of the box and it's too late to put it back in. You did mention that in New York, you needed a digital ID just to clarify on that. You could get away with physical paper showing that you were vaccinated, but you did have to show your papers every time you got into a restaurant. But I get the broader point that certainly the pandemic was a way to push the idea of a digital ID under the guise, oh, it's so much more easy if you just have this app on your phone. And it certainly took off in Canada. And Canada, you write in your book, uh, did the world a favor when it revealed the relationship between digital ID and digital currency. You write in the book, Canadians rose in protest of the vaccine mandates and digital identification, which was some of the most restrictive in the world. The Canadian Freedom Convoy was an organized effort to protest these new mandates. The Trudeau government saw the danger of letting the truckers and other dissidents rise up, and it cracked down with an iron fist. And when Canadian authorities froze the financial assets of the convoy protesters, not where they also froze the assets 
of convoy supporters who may not have even attended the protests. And more shocking, the Trudeau government did this by invoking never-before-used emergency powers. The Canadian finance minister, a World Economic Forum acolyte, as you mentioned, Christia Freeland, took immediate steps to cut off the truckers and other protesters from the digital financial system. He also go on to illustrate how even uh, supposedly independent companies like GoFundMe put up very little resistance and cut people off the system, you know, just canceling them straight out of the financial system. Now, of course, this is so much easier to do, Seamus, and it's so much easier to crush dissent and to disincentivize any bad behavior when you have a digital ID linked to a central bank digital currency. So expand on the idea of why this link is so dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. And so even like even with the paper you you know saw, like when you had to show your passport, you were denied service. I mean, we've now experienced many of us have experienced scenarios in which you're denied service and denied access. And you've also you know you see on social media companies when you're censored and shadow banned, you see these kind of totalitarian impulses when you have to show an ID in order to do something. Um, except vote actually hilariously yeah. in the United States in a lot of places. But when you have to show an ID to access regular goods and services, and when that is essentially stored by the type of people we're talking about here, they can totally cut you out and uh, make you a second-class citizen. And uh, all over the world, I mean, China's got the social credit score in place right now. You can see people are denied um, you know, services or not allowed to do certain things based on their credit score. Um, the, the people in this book like that system. They're yeah, big fans of that kind of, uh, power. And so, uh, it's not really conspiracy theory. It's happening in a lot of places. It happened during the pandemic. And, uh, if you're opposed to it, uh, you know, you maybe <laughs> you're not going to have much longer to be opposed to it once right. they start rolling it out and you can't access certain things. Without the thing, that's why a lot of people got the vaccines, even if they didn't want to get the vaccines, is because you weren't allowed to either have a job or you weren't allowed to, I mean, some, you know, go to a restaurant even or go to a, you know, an event. So, uh, yeah, they make it essential to be able to function in society. You know, you would just effectively cut off from society if you didn't go along with it. And as we say, when we link a digital ID to a central bank digital currency, that just makes it so much easier for the powers that be to regulate behavior. And we say it's, it's obviously not a conspiracy theory. It's very much an agenda that's tremendously ahead, in fact. I mean, as we discussed at the top of the show, that uh, the UN and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been actively pushing this forward. There's one deadline of 2030 for everyone, but that deadline of 2028 for 50 countries to make uh, significant steps in the next five years. And just as we are in terms of where we are uh, as a progress report here in Australia, which had some of the strictest lockdowns and, and some of the most government overreach during COVID, they're quite far ahead with digital IDs. The finance minister there, Katie Gallagher, says digital IDs are very high on the agenda and uh, a national digital verification service could be in place as soon as mid-2024. So by mid of next year, and she says, especially considering New South Wales and South Australia already have state-based versions of digital IDs. Um, those first mover countries that we discussed in the uh, 15.5, those include 
Bangladesh, Estonia, Ethiopia, Moldova, Norway, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Singapore, Sri Lanka, and Togo. And uh, according to a new study from Juniper Research, the number of users of digital ID documents globally will exceed 6.5 billion by 2026 from uh, 4.2 billion in 2022. So this expansion of over 50% has clearly been accelerated and accelerated by the pandemic, according to the research show. And similar efforts are being made here in the U.S., right? I mean, the U.S. is not exempt to this at all. In fact, you've got a number of states letting residents prove their identity digitally. Of course, not to vote, as we discussed the irony there that oftentimes you don't even need to show identity to vote. But um, as of September of this year, the Federal Transportation Security Administration accepts uh, mobile IDs in California, Iowa, and uh, four other states at more than two dozen airports across the country. So it's clearly moving along. The Improving Digital Identity Act was passed by the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and moved on to the full Senate for debate. So as we are, Seamus, is it too late? Is there any way to stop this train or is just this inevitable at this point? Well, I don't, I, you know, that's, uh, that would be a depressing thought if there was nothing we could do about it. Certainly, I think there's things we can do. You can uh, resist, you can not comply. Um, you, we saw that worked actually in the pandemic, at least in, in the United States um, and, and every other country to a degree. I mean, there, the compliance rates were much higher. I think the U.S. is probably one of the lower compliance rates. Um, and that's probably the reason that there's such a, you know, with funding from George Soros to just upend the uh, you know, just create chaos, whether it's at the border or with these, uh, you know, opening up the prisons and, uh, hiring these prosecutors who are tough on crime. Probably why there's such an onslaught against the United States is because, uh, we don't comply, uh, a lot of us with certain things like a digital ID. So I won't be getting one. I guess they can't force me to get one or maybe they'll try. Um, I don't think it's over, not at all. And I think, you know, the, the one thing you can do is sp- like share this information and tell everyone you know about it. I mean, they'll th- they'll call you a conspiracy theorist, um, but not if you come with the facts and show, um, you know, talk about the events. Like there was this event, Collective Strength, um, where all of the central bankers got together and talk. this was on the central bank digital currency. Like um, they get together and they talk about, it's like a war game where they plan out sort of like the event 201 was for COVID. And uh, what, what, you know, they run these scenarios of why do we need total control over the global financial system, something that CBDC could provide, is because dissidents um, are going to cause a run on the banks. And so this is one of the things that, like a big threat of CBDC is it's not just financially canceling you or debanking you. It can debank your you, your business and all of your relatives. It could debank you uh, and everybody who you know who went to a certain political protest, like January 6th, for example, they were working very closely with the banks um, to identify the attendees of January 6th. What if they just froze all of their assets? I mean, you can see uh, any number of ways that they would uh, really like to have this power. um, And you can just show people examples of them using this power, like freezing the assets of the Canadian trucker convoy uh, organizers. It's already been done. And so, you know, it's it's not conspiracy theory. You just have to have the facts and, and share those. Well, it's not conspiracy theory. Over 110 countries are in active stages of developing a central bank digital currency. 
And as you know, we've just run through the agenda to get a digital ID is very, very far ahead. I'm just seeing the you know the Philippines, for example, issued digital IDs for 76 million citizens. So it's underway. Um, it's underway in terms of digital IDs. Developing a central bank digital currency is underway. The link of using the two together to control people is still not something that is you know, widely seen as the likely outcome. How is this being pitched to people? Like, how is this being sold in terms of people wanting to opt in? We discussed the universal basic income as one of the incentives. What are the other ways that authorities are trying to make um, citizens volunteer to do this or think that they'll, it'll be beneficial to them? Well, it's, it's usually one of three ways or all three ways, and it's safety, security, and convenience. And, uh, you know, combined, those are three good reasons to do some things. You know, this is for your safety um, and security and your convenience. I mean, it's shocking the number of things that you'll do just for convenience, um, you know, turning over your biometric biometric data to uh, clear to fly, fly uh, you know, to save some time in line. It's And it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, you can totally see why people would want to do it to save some time, to save some money. And of course, I mean, safety is a big one. Um, you know, this will protect you in some way. Uh, and then with the universal basic income, I mean, of course, for, for, for cash, I mean, you can pay somebody. So that kind of falls under convenience. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, those, those, the security one on the CBDCs is like, we really need to lock down the terrorism. We got to make sure that we can freeze the terrorists money. That one's, uh, like falls under safety or security. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that was one of the examples they used in this war game exercise. Uh, the, the collapse of the financial system, the, you know, ironically, the banks who precipitate previous global financial uh, crises are saying that, oh, well, in order, like, we, we, we must get what we want or the system will collapse. It's like, well, uh, maybe you should be investigated. Why is Bill Gates pushing for this digital ID? Why is he trying to take over America's farmland? Why is he pushing for fake meat? What do you think, and again, asking you to read into his mind here, is the drive behind his desire to do this? Uh, gather control over key industries and healthcare is a big one. Um, Bill Gates has done the same thing. So for every dollar, we calculated this and put it in the book, for every dollar he gives away, he really gets $2 in return. And it's by funding, you know, white papers that say that uh, climate change is going to, you know, that cows are going to, you know, create more global warming. And that's why we need uh, alternative proteins and uh, same thing with the energy. So, uh, you know, the simplest explanation is it's about money, but controlling industries leads to a lot of money. And uh, when you you see some of the comments that these guys have, you really, it's a God complex. I mean, they, you know, with the food, they think that they can make a better cow in a lab somehow. Uh, they think that they can create life extension products with that's with the, like the mRNA technologies. I mean, it, mRNA, Bill Gates was funding long before the pan pandemic. And really, if you look at the founder of Moderna and the, the chief science officer, there's a great TED talk he gives on YouTube about what mRNA can do. It can, uh, you know, anti-aging type mm -hmm. uh, applications. And then with the transhumanism and the artificial intelligence and the open AI, Microsoft is the largest backer of open AI. Um, that's, that's also sort of having to do with life extension and, and merging yeah. man with machine. It's really, 
really sort of dystopian stuff. And you always thought of it as far off in the future, the singularity. I mean, the singularity, mm-hmm. uh, if those who haven't heard of it, is when uh, man and machi- machine merge. It was set to be 2050, according to Google's Ray Kurzweil, but it's uh, been bumped up to 2040 and it's probably going to happen in most of our lifetimes. I mean, what that exactly means, we don't know, but right. uh, it doesn't it doesn't look good except for people like Bill Gates. Yeah, again, the book highlights a lot of threats in a dystopian future, as you put it, but backs it up with tremendous research, and it doesn't seem that far off at all. Now, we, we've just discussed how a digital ID is happening. Whether we like it or not, it is happening in the EU. EU it's happening around the world. It's happening in the U.S. already to some degree. Um, and we've discussed how a digital ID linked to a central bank digital currency is probably the next step. And a central bank digital currency and a digital ID linked to a social credit score is a way to, you know, control behavior. Thank you for watching this video. If you found this information eye-opening, please subscribe to our channel to stay informed and be part of the resistance. Together, we can unveil the hidden agenda behind the new normal and fight for a future that we deserve. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you've never put your faith in him, And I'm not talking about religion. This is a personal relationship with the living God made possible only through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If you would like to make that decision today, I leave a link in the description box below. Go down there, click on that link. It'll take you to a page that will help lead you in a simple prayer. And if you believe it in your heart, repent of your sin, turn to God, and he will save you and you will be ready so that no matter what happens in this world you're ready to enter eternity with him think about it